Well, today feels a bit like Christmas for me. And Hanukkah for me. UConn plays in the Big East tournament against the team everyone expected them to be playing, the DePaul Blue Demons. Right. Yep. Everyone. Even Felt, Vegas. Even, especially Vegas. Vegas was absolutely praying that it would be DePaul. Felt like all of UConn Nation was just waiting for the Blue Demons to fall apart down the stretch. And they just never did. What an upset. 70-62 to 62 over Providence. And how freaking awesome it is to be able to watch an interesting conference tournament without fans. But let's be honest. It was without fans last year and the year before and the year before in the American anyways. Quick housekeeping. This part of the episode will close with our conversation from yesterday with the Hartford Kearns Damamore. And then each day that UConn wins in the Big East Tournament, we will record an instant recap podcast, or it might be the next morning, depending on how late the games go. And we'll air that the day of the following game. So let's get right into it. UConn DePaul, let's, let's talk yeah. Huskies and Blue Demons. I mean, look, uh, like you said, what an upset, but at the same time, <laughs> Providence going to Providence, am I right? So anyways, uh, going over that game really quick. Charlie Moore and Javon Freeman Liberty both had 21 points. And in addition to that, the DePaul bench put up 25. So, you know, what have these guys done against UConn, though? UConn has held Moore to single digits in both games that they've played against him. And they forced him to turn the ball over seven times in those games, which is just as many assists he's had in those games. It's just wild to me that UConn's getting the 11 seed in their first game. Providence totally choked this away. Like, what? How? You, your livelihood for the NCAA tournament's on the line, you know? You gotta win probably three games, if not win the tournament in order to get in, and what do you do? You poop your pants against DePaul. And I think a lot of UConn fans... The vast majority of us were a lot more worried about Providence than DePaul. To be honest, none of us really even believed there was a chance UConn would play DePaul. To be honest, also, part of me is a little upset, and a lot of hot balls is a lot upset. I mean, he wanted to spend his Thursday cyberbullying Providence fans for the hours leading up to the game, and I would have loved a rubber match against Providence after splitting the regular season. But... You know, having the chance to play DePaul in the first game is really something that UConn can capitalize on. Yeah, you know, it's funny because earlier in the day before the game, you were like, I mean, there's no chance we're playing DePaul. Or we were talking about it would be nice if UConn could play DePaul possibly, but oh, that won't happen. And then you even said to me, like you just said, oh, I'd almost rather play Providence because then we can shove it down their throats. But at the end of the day, it's like I'd rather play the lesser team. Like DePaul was really bad all season long. Uh, they had two conference wins. Yeah, one was a big win pretty late in the season at St. John's. But Providence was just the better team. You know, the preseason pick was third in the conference. And that's not just by luck. That's Big East coaches thinking that, hey, this team has a lot of talent, a lot of pieces that if they come together and click, they can be a good team. And we saw UConn played probably their worst game of the season at Providence. It was a stinker. Um, they later came back with James Booknight in the lineup and beat them inside Gamble Pavilion. But like I said, I think more UConn fans were worried about Providence than DePaul. So you look at the regular season against DePaul, UConn faced them twice. That's good. You got more material to scout on to recap. First game was in Chicago. It was without James Booknight, who was out with that elbow injury. And it was a game UConn just barely squeaked out. But then later in the season... 
playing back home in stores. Huskies just destroyed them. Book Knight was back in the lineup. It was an 82 to 61 win where James and Tyrese Martin combined for 42 points and Josh Carlton chipped in 11 points and 10 rebounds. So Matt, are we worried about DePaul? I'm not worried because for me, unless Charlie Moore does his best Kemba Walker impression, like this game shouldn't be too much of an issue for the Huskies to win, right? If they get done what they can usually get done on offense. I've said it all year over and over. UConn has done a good to great job all season on limiting the other team's top scoring guards. So for me, a guy like Charlie Moore, I'm not too worried. Like I said earlier, both games that they played against him, they kept into single digits and not a lot of teams in the Big East can say that. Uh, my only slight concern would be that DePaul possibly is the more desperate team. But you know what? UConn is the better seed versus whether they played DePaul or whether they played Providence. So either way, the storyline could have been, oh, the team coming in and playing UConn is coming off a win and they're desperate. I, I've got the confidence that Dan Hurley will have the team mentally prepared and that won't be that big of an issue. Yeah, I mean... One storyline that's kind of fun for me is that Dave Leto gets, you know, to play against UConn, which is a program that he really helped build alongside Jim Calhoun back from 1986 to 94. And then again, from 96 to 2002. So you look at it from that perspective, can he motivate his team to go into Madison square garden where he had so many hallowed memories as a UConn coach and pull off the upset? I, I just don't think so. I think DePaul's, they're just too thin, don't have enough scoring punch. They're probably going to be a little tired from tonight or last night, excuse me, uh, against Providence because, you know, that's not an easy game. UConn's well-rested. Coach really talked about it. They're the healthiest they've been in a while. This, this bye game in the first round really helped them. There's one thing I'm most worried about, though. It's UConn's offense, to be honest. I don't think the defense is going to struggle too much. DePaul is really a subpar offensive team. They put up just 66 points a game. But UConn's offense, you know, fully transparent, has probably been the biggest weak spot this season. So my question is, can the backcourt get the offense going? RJ Cole, James Booknight, you look at a guy like Jalen Gaffney, who really had a great game against Georgetown in the last regular season game. And then how will a young center like Adama Sinogo handle the pressure of his first conference tournament game? Um, it's something also Hurley was talking about tonight, you know, the youth of this UConn team. A lot of these guys haven't played in the postseason. Last season was canceled before... They were able to tip off down at Dickey's Arena. Shout out Dickey's. And, you know, the real anchors of this team just don't have major tournament experience. James Booknight, RJ Cole, Jalen Gaffney, you know, these guys aren't veterans in the postseason yet. The only real anchor of this team with postseason experience is the wrench, Isaiah Whaley. You might remember he had his breakout game in his sophomore year against South Florida in the conference tournament in Memphis, eight points, four boards. But other than that, you know, it's a young team. You're going to rely on guys like Adama Sonogo and James Booknight who have not played in the postseason yet. Yeah, shout out Dickies Arena. Shout out Neil Ostrop for always tweeting about it. But um, yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll give you the flip side of that for guys that haven't played in the postseason yet. How about guys like James Booknight itching to play in, in this situation? Um, you know, last year him and Vital were looking like they were going to be able to lead the way to possibly the AAC final at the least the way it was looking. Um, so I see a guy like him. I mean, he's dying to get out there and take control. 
some of the other guys that, you know, maybe like you said, freshmen, um, that how are they going to handle it? I think, you know, now it definitely helps that Adama is not going to be playing up against a Nate Watson in the first round, not saying that DePaul isn't going to give him any kind of, you know, not, not going to be a walk in the park, but that that's definitely a big difference. And on top of that, still there's practically no fans. It's just family. So I think that does help settle the nerves of, you know, coming into Madison square garden and being, blinded by the you know the world's most famous arena and a packed crowd and you know you're, you're a little nervous I, I think it, it, it does settle them down a little bit in a way yeah and I think that's a good point when you look at a young team maybe removing some of those external factors is the best possible thing you know they can just walk in on the game and not need to worry about you know what if they don't come out and play well during the first eight minutes you know you might get restless UConn fans at the garden who are ready for this big outburst in the first game that they're playing in the tournament in eight years. And now with no fans, you don't need to worry about that. You know, I'm expecting the first eight to 12 minutes to be a back and forth battle. Maybe UConn's going to have to absorb a couple punches from guys like Charlie Moore, Polly Polycap. Uh, you know, we don't know. DePaul could come out on fire. UConn could come out looking rusty or nervous. But when we get down to it, UConn has a ton of talent, a ton of depth, and Dan Hurley is going to have this team ready to go. So, Matt, I have my prediction, but I want to hear yours first. Man, you know, I don't want to get too ahead of myself and say a double-digit win, but certainly possible, like how you've, how you've laid out the game. I think, you know, it, it's, it's going to be closer in the first half and then – second half the team will be able to pull away especially if a guy like Tyler Polly catches fire you know if he puts in 12 15 points the Paul's not gonna be able to keep up you could easily have a double digit victory not saying the game's gonna be easy though what about you yeah I think it's gonna be close first half uh but I think UConn they'll pull away in the second my big thing though is does UConn take DePaul seriously and they need to it's postseason it's the Big East Conference where despite DePaul not having a great season, any team can beat any team, honestly. And it's just a matter of walking in. You know, a lot of experts or talking heads on TV have called UConn their favorites to win this Big East Conference tournament. If UConn's able to walk in, take DePaul seriously, it's on to the semifinals. If not, could be a more nervous night than many UConn fans want. But before we send it back over to our segment with Dom Amore, just want to talk a little bit about the atmosphere that we've sort of seen from the team this week. I think Hurley was seemed pretty relaxed tonight. Did you get that impression too from his press conference? Yeah, I, I think so. And I think that's just, um, I think that's just good preparation to, uh, to be honest. I think, you know, he's been him and everybody has been waiting for this dying for this to happen. And now, you know, you've done, it's, it's like the night before an exam, right? Like, okay, I, I've done all the studying I can do. I am prepared. Now I'm just going to relax, go in tomorrow and kill it. And I, I think maybe that's what you see that relaxation from him. And it sounds like he's pretty confident in the roster he has right now. Everybody's as healthy as they've been. You've got an alpha in James Booknight. You've got a supporting cast and you've got the UConn fan base behind them. He says that the team can feel the energy. Yes, there's 
extremely limited fans at the tournament. It's just friends and family breaks basically, but you can feel the energy on social media and just in the air, honestly. Yeah. And even, you know, Dan talked about it uh, during the presser, how the team, once they finally you know, got their chance to walk out on the court in the morning and he was like, you know, we walked out and all the lights are off. And he said like something like as soon as they get to step on the court, all the lights turned on and how, how magical a moment, you know, that, that could be that, that would give me the chills if I was a player. One thing that's fun too, is sort of seeing some behind the scenes look from athletics director, David Benedict. There was a while where he was quiet on Twitter, uh, but he was the mastermind, the architect behind getting UConn back into the big East. And it, it couldn't have been easy for him. You know, UConn football has a lot of money invested from the university and the basketball program has struggled for a number of years. But right now, this is where UConn belongs. And seeing Benedict just light up Twitter day after day, trolling the AAC, sharing pictures from the hotel, you know, sharing the walk from the concourse, from the underneath tunnels of Madison Square Garden out onto the court and tweeting pictures of the team during practice and engaging with fans, quote tweeting, responding to tweets. It's, it's exciting. And it's good program management because there are thousands of UConn fans who would just be dying at the chance to get into Madison Square Garden. And for the leader of this athletics program, who has done just a great job the last couple of years to be engaging his fans, the program's fans, it's helping a lot. It's connecting us to the team and it's only going to make it that much sweeter when we're allowed to invade upon uh the sixth borough next season, next March for next year's Big East tournament. Well put. So with that, we're actually fully transparent recording this on Wednesday night. It'll go out Thursday morning. It, it is Thursday morning it at is 1 a.m., 1.25 a.m. But like the rest of you, it's going to be hard to fall asleep tonight. Like, man, UConn is really playing in the Big East tournament tomorrow. Like Gus Johnson on the call. Like, I feel bad for my teacher tomorrow morning because I am not going to be paying attention at all. This is going to be like daydreaming about tip off all day long. Anyways, Matt, any final thoughts? No, let's go. uh, Let's go kill some blue demons. Let's do it. Also tonight, we just could not remember if they were the blue demons or the blue deacons. It's kind of goes to show how just irrelevant they are on the Big East. Anyways, we're going to toss it over to our pre-recorded segment with Dama More. Please excuse the start because we recorded this yesterday and already released this part of the episode. So if you want to still listen, go ahead, Dom, tell us some great stories about, you know, his experience and his perspective on UConn. And we had a lot of fun talking to him. This is episode 12, part two of the It's Coming podcast. We'll talk to you hopefully tomorrow night as UConn continues their march in the tournament, in the postseason. Thanks for tuning in. It's Big East Tournament Week, and for part one of this week's episode of the It's Coming podcast, we're joined by a guest who knows as much about the UConn men's basketball team as anyone. Today, we're joined by Dom Amore, beat writer for the men's team for the Hartford Current. Dom, thanks so much for taking the time to join us this week. You got it, guys. You're flattering me a little bit. I think there are probably some people who know more than I do. I really haven't been around on this beat as long as, as you might think, but um, but yeah, it's uh, it's going to be a fun week and it's fun times and it's like old times in a lot of ways. So before we get into content too much, just a little housekeeping, this part of the episode will air on Wednesday. 
Once UConn knows their opponent, Matt and I will preview that opponent and release a second part of the episode, including our conversation with Dom on Thursday morning. So Wednesday, part one, Thursday, part two. But logistics aside, let's jump right into some Big East tournament preview. First things first, you're heading down to New York. What are some of the biggest storylines you're looking for this week? Well, you know, I, I think uh, I feel like UConn is really the team to beat right now. I feel like things have really broken in their direction. Uh, not unlike the feeling that a lot of us had one year ago uh, when they were on their way to Fort Worth for that that tournament. Uh, they were playing the best uh, the best basketball, I think, of anybody in the American on March 10th, 19 or 2020. And I think I feel like they're playing the best basketball in the Big East right now. They've won five out of six. Uh, they're clearly a different team since they got James Booknight and, and Andre Jackson back. Uh, and, you know, we're seeing maybe some of the other teams that were, you know, the, the Big East is the kind of conference where everybody kind of pulls to the middle. You know, the teams that are down early in the season rise up. The teams that are on top early come back to the pack a little bit. And I think this is probably a tournament where six or seven teams could potentially emerge uh, victorious on, on Sunday. But I think right now UConn is playing the best of anyone. So I'm looking at that storyline. Um, and then I, I'm, uh, I'm just kind of interested in, uh, in, in just in, in seeing how much James Booknight takes this tournament and makes it his own. What could be his, his, last, his last great triumph at UConn in a short but very notable career. Now, you know, like you said, some of the top teams have maybe pulled a little more towards the middle of the pack. Villanova is now going to be without Gillespie and possibly Justin Moore for the entire tournament. So we've had sports books uh, putting UConn as the odds on favorite. Uh, and you kind of talked a little bit about why you think UConn can win. So do you do you have UConn as your favorite for the tournament right now? You know, I do. I mean, I, I guess I kind of went out on that limb uh, riding off the Georgetown game, but uh, I do. I, I think uh, I think they're the team everyone's looking at and saying, boy, that's that that's the team we, we don't want to get get by. You know, Creighton could work two different ways. They have a lot of obviously the turmoil surrounding the, the comments or the or the, the locker room speech that Greg McDermott gave uh, that could disparate the team or the team could rally around it. And it looked like the first game they played after that against Villanova, they played very, they didn't play well at all and they got blown out. But then last week, it looked, the last game, it looked like they had kind of recovered from all that and were, were playing you know, with an edge again and that they've kind of rallied around their coach who's not reinstated. So Creighton you know, could certainly be very dangerous. Uh, again, they, they, could be, they could be even more dangerous than they were before or a lot less. You don't know how that, that kind of thing is going to play out because it's not an injury. It's a, it's an intangible. So you're obviously a local writer for UConn, but there's been a lot more national coverage of the Huskies this season and particularly, you know, the last couple of weeks, just what's that like for you, you know, as someone who is with the team for every single media availability, every game, um, what's it like to sort of hear writers from across the country, focusing in a little bit more, talking a little bit more about the Huskies. Well, I always go back to the when they were in the Final Four in 2014. Uh, I think I did 37 radio interviews in uh, in four days. Um, and Paul Doyle was with The Current at the time. And we were kind of laughing. You know, the, my, my phone would go off in the press room and I'd say, oh, Calgary. 
you know, or phone will go off again, uh, Nashville, you know, up, up Omaha, you know, so uh, it, it, it is kind of like that. And I know, of course, in the past championship runs, uh, it was the same way. Um, but it's always, it, it's always um, kind of interesting and kind of fun when people kind of discover the local team, you know, you, you've been around them, you know, the stories, you know, everyone's thing. And now you start to see, uh, you know, other people uh, latching on to James Booknight's story or other people latching on to RJ Cole's story, other people latching on to Isaiah Whaley's story, which is really a remarkable college basketball story. So you do see, you do see a lot of that. Um, and, you know, kind of the nature, the nature of journalism, I guess we all kind of think we invented it. So everyone, everyone who does, uh, does a story on UConn is going to do it from the thinking that they're the first ones to do it, even though here in Connecticut, we kind of know the stories a little better than, than elsewhere. Yeah. And I, I think, uh, you know, this, especially this past week, and like you said, with UConn winning five of six, there's, I've seen multiple tweets from teams uh, or fans of teams that are not in this conference, especially saying like, I just, I just watched the UConn game. I would not want to be playing them, things like that. So that being said, uh, you touched on a little earlier about what you think UConn can do in the tournament, but if there were two to three keys for success for the team this week, what would they be? Well, I think the, first, I think the, the main one is going to be the intangible, which they're really going to, they're going to have to maintain the edge or the chip on their shoulder that they've had. Uh, you know, Dan Hurley's done a pretty good job of playing that nobody respects his card. Um, he kind of trotted it out after the Georgetown game. And, you know, particularly in that first game, when they play Providence, if they play, if it's Providence and not DePaul, I'm assuming for our purposes, let's assume it's Providence. <clears throat> you know, Providence was picked third in the preseason. I mean, that, that, they were a very, very good team. And at their best, they've been very, very good. Uh, at their worst, not so much. They've been up and down. But I would think that would be a very dangerous first opponent for you for a UConn team that is now thought of as the favorite. So keeping that edge and that chip on the shoulder going into that game is going to be, a, I think, is going to be a big, big factor. But then the other thing is, I think UConn's big, uh, big guys have to stay out of foul trouble. They need, they need Sunogo on the floor. They need Whaley on the floor. Um, the, the guys who play behind them are capable, but not if they have to play almost the entire game. So that's, the, that's one. And then I think to really kick it up to the next level and really be a threat, not only in this tournament, but the next one, they have to shoot the three-pointer and shoot it better. Um, you know, if, if uh, Tyler Polly who is, I think he shot 36.9%. And he's better than that, usually. I think he, he's been in the 40s in the past. But if he could shoot 40, 45% from three or get really, really red hot and have the kind of effect that Niels Gafai had for them in 2014, um, that could be just a huge uh, factor for them, huge. It would just really open everything up for everybody else to operate and would make them almost impossible to defend. I think if you look at their, the games for the most part, the best games they played were the games where somebody 
shot the three well. If it wasn't Polly, maybe it was Book Knight or maybe it was it was Martin. But I think UConn's got to shoot the three to be a complete team. For me, something that really stands out and I feel like is going to bode well is that UConn has so much depth. And it's something that was talked about preseason. And when you get into a tournament like this where you know teams only have one day to scout their opponent, and then you look at the last you know, four or five games for UConn. Yes, Book Knights put up 20 points a game, but then, you know, against Georgetown, it was a guy like Jalen Gaffney going six for six off the bench. RJ Cole can light it up. You know, there's just so many guys on this team who can chip in 12 to 14 points and be that X factor. So when you're an opponent, it's like, how do you, how do you scout this team? Um, and so we've heard Hurley talk about, you know, maybe Book Knight going down in the middle of the season was a bit of a blessing in disguise. Is that, is that something you agree with? Do you think the depth has played out like we expected um, when everybody was talking about how deep this was, how deep this team was preseason? You know, depth is such a hard thing to define and it's such a hard thing to evaluate. You know, when you're playing early in the year, you're playing central Connecticut and you heart, it looks like you got 13 guys who can play. And then when you get later on in the season, sometimes you wonder if you even have seven. Uh, and there were times when Book Knight was out when uh, that depth didn't look as good as it looks now. But in a sense, yeah, guys got to play. You know, Gaffney, who, by the way, is a very, very talented kid who's only shown uh, the surface of what he can be. Uh, but he had some big games, some good games while, while Book Knight was out. And now he kind of is able to come in and and show flashes of that. You know, we saw Martin have some huge games during Book Knight's absence. He averaged, he scored over 10 points in every game. He's been a little more quiet since. Uh, and, you know, we've kind of seen a light go on with RJ Cole. Um, and I don't know if that was necessarily uh, while Book Knight was out. I think it kind of happened in that Xavier game while Book Knight was still out. But I felt like, uh, I feel like he really, got up to speed with the Big East, you know, going from the MEAC, sitting out a year, going to the Big East, that was going to be an adjustment. But I think he began to make that adjustment, and that's a key. But to answer your question, you know, we thought going into the season that UConn would have a lot of weapons and a lot of depth, and we thought, as we would think going into next season, even if Book Knight's not there, uh, that they're going to have a lot of weapons and a lot of depth between what they have now and the freshmen coming back. So essentially, over the course of the season, UConn's kind of developed and rounded out into the kind of team that we thought they were going to be at the beginning of the season. You know, the COVID disruptions, the injuries, uh, the games canceled, they couldn't really play. You, know, you wonder how good this team would have been with a full 31-game schedule, padded with six mid-majors. I'm sure they would, be, would have been 23-24 win team, you know. So I think that's what you're seeing now. I think they, they look like the team we thought they were going to be at, at the right time. Yeah, and going off uh, expectations, uh, the biggest player and coach of the year will be announced tomorrow. Now, something interesting to me is Mike Anderson with St. John's. You know, they were picked ninth in the preseason coaches poll. They end up finishing fourth. Dan Hurley uh, has his team finished third in a year where their best player missed eight games. So I want to hear your predictions for those. Well, um, I think the player of the year is probably, 
going to be uh, going to be Zegarowski or um, or Sandro uh, at, at Seton Hall. They they were the unanimous selections for the all tournament team. So I would think it would be one of them. Um, you know, I could see Book Knight, you know, kind of having points docked because he didn't play, you know, the whole season, even though for the games he played, you could, I think you could argue he's the most valuable player in the league based on that. Uh, Coach of the year, um, I'll tell you, it wouldn't surprise me if Mike Anderson and Dan Hurley shared it. I think they both have equal equal claim to that award. It, you know, it, it's hard to overlook what Hurley's done to, 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 to bring them home in third place with the, a key player out overperforming their postseason, their preseason ranked by one. But in the first year in a league, you know, a lot of coaches felt like first year in the league is going to be really, really tough for anybody. Even And so for them, for UConn to go from an also ran in the American to doing this their first year in the Big East, that's hard to ignore. Now, on the other hand, uh, with Mike Anderson, he took over just a chaotic situation there. Uh, you know, in the wake of, of Chris Mullen, uh, he took over a, um, you know, a lot of players leaving, a lot of players, a lot of young players. Um, and he, I thought he, I thought he did a tremendous job. And he's a very experienced coach. He's seen everything. Uh, I thought he did a tremendous game coaching job against UConn. It was a key to that, to that win. So I, I, I mean, I guess if I had a vote, I would probably vote for Mike Anderson. Um, but if I could split it, I would, because I think both of those, both Anderson and Hurley have, have uh, equal, uh, equal claim to that award. I think an, an equally good case could be made for either guy. So we're going to take a little blast from the past, but I mean, something that I think we've all experienced throughout the whole season is just kind of how bittersweet it is to not be able to watch this team in person in front of packed houses um, and to not be able to experience them have that full 30 plus game season where they rounded into shape. They took stride, you know, they were able to, really cap it off with a big run at the end of the regular season. It's, it's tough to, you know, not be able to witness it in person, not have these kids enjoying the, the limelight and the spotlight. And especially for book night too. I mean, he's, he's going to be a lottery pick. This is a guy who really took UConn to the next step last year and just took the UConn fan base by surprise. So with that being said, we're going to think back to Big East tournaments of past years. And I want to hear what is your favorite Big East tournament moment of all time? Well, you know, I haven't covered a lot of them, surprisingly, because, uh, you know, for most of that era, I was covering the Giants and the Yankees. Um, and so I really only covered my first year on the beat was um, the last one they played in. And that was so I don't necessarily have great Big East tournament memories, but I'll give you the next best thing. And that's, you know, a, a game I did cover back when I was your age. Uh, and that's the NIT final in 1988. Uh, hard to imagine how big a deal that was because the NIT, you know, one time the NIT was considered the national championship tournament. That was no longer the case by 88, but it was still a much, much bigger deal then 
than it was today. And for UConn, which had never been anywhere near anything like that, to make that run uh, and win at the Garden. And, you know, you, you could kind of imagine that the NIT didn't sell a lot of tickets, okay? So UConn's at the Garden with, uh, you know, uh, Boston College and Ohio State. And UConn fans just snapped up every possible ticket that was available. And then when teams got eliminated, they snapped up every other one. So when they played Ohio State in the final, March 30th, 1988, it was about as packed a house. Imagine uh, a packed XL and a packed uh, Gamble put together in New York. And that's what it was like. It was, it was like a, it was like a, uh, it was like a packed Yankee stadium or a packed giant stadium with UConn fans. And it was something else. And they, they stormed the court after the game. And, you know, the, uh, there's the iconic picture that's in Gamble now of Phil Gamble and Jeff King sitting up on top of the, on top of the, uh, the backboard. And I always, I, I know you guys probably aren't old movie fans, but I always joke with Jim Calhoun who is that it's like Jimmy Cagney in the last scene of white heat famous film noir where He's sitting on these gas tanks uh, and he's saying, look, my made it top of the world, you know, before the law blew up all the gas tanks, but it, they were up on top of the world. And uh, it was a, that was really my favorite moment. I think that's the moment that uh, UConn began to take on the, you know, what, what we all take for granted today and what seemed like forever, at least three years or four years, you know, it's hard to, to remember where they are now. They were in the tournament only five years ago. It was only 2016 that they were in Des Moines and they were on the court with Kansas uh, in, in, in the second round of the tournament. But man, it seems like forever, doesn't it? It seems like forever since they've been this good. And I think it, it is unfortunate. I'm rambling, I know. But it is unfortunate that they didn't do what, um, that, that they could not do this in front of fans because there will never be another year quite like this one. First year back in the Big East, which everyone was so excited about, and this return to the national stage. These things happening, you know, I mean, next year when everybody gets to see the games, they'll be crazy and, and there'll be high expectations. But it's really kind of an innocent climb again right now, just like it was in 88, just like it was in 90. And uh, it is unfortunate that fans can't witness it in person. But, um, you know, given the state of the world and everything that's happened, um, it's not too bad. <laughs> it's, you know, th these are pretty good times if you're a UConn fan. Right. And I mean, at the end of the day, they, they've gotten through a full regular season. It looks like the postseason's a go. Um, I know it was just about a year ago when everything really shut down. And this is like everybody's been talking about this week last year and thinking about this week next year. You know, Matt and I will be seniors and. Mm -hmm will either be at Madison Square Garden covering or, you know, in the student section. And it's just going to be, you know, it's going to be sweet once the, once the time finally comes to be able to return to a little bit more normalcy and watch this team in person again. Yeah. And, and that being said, and you kind of gave us a great story right there about MSG, but where does Madison Square Garden in March rank among sporting events that you've covered? Uh well, it's got to be right up there at the top. I mean, you know, I did, 
you know, again, I, I didn't, I've only covered the one big, East, well, I've covered a couple of big East tournaments there, one long ago and then the one in 2012. Uh, but, you know, another, another game that was like that was the 2014 uh, Sweet 16 Elite Eight games uh, when they, obviously when they played Michigan State. Uh, and that was, that was very similar. Um, you know, for me, it's hard to, it's hard to imagine anything bigger than Yankee Stadium in 2001. Uh, during the post 9-11 games and, uh, you know, the press box kind of shaking underneath you. Uh, it's hard to imagine anything uh, bigger than Giants Stadium in an NFC championship game when the, you know, the Giants won 41 to nothing. So the place was was absolutely, uh, you know, bedlam from start to finish. Um, those those are gigantic events. They're outdoor stadiums that were huge, you know, of course. Um, but Certainly Madison Square Garden, when it's, when it's filled and when it's that filled with UConn fans is something that's unlike, in, in, in a way, it, it, they're all unique experiences, but that's probably, you know, uh, it's unique in its own way and probably ranks right up there with those other two, other two venues I mentioned. Well, Dom, thanks for joining us. It's always great to hear, you know, your perspective on the team some of your stories of covering teams in the past. And I know it's against, totally against press etiquette, but if you're able to give a little cheer when the Huskies first run out there on Thursday, please do that for all of us students back here in stores. Well, I can't really do that. And if I did, no one would really hear it because I'd be up and I'm going to be up in the rafters and the hockey press box. But, um, you know, the, be the best advice I would give any UConn fan is enjoy it as much as you can, any way you can because these moments are rare. And even, you know, even with a program as storied as UConn, you know, the four championships are pretty well spaced. You know, there, there's a gap between them. You know, you don't, you don't, this doesn't happen every year. So, you know, enjoy it as much as you can, any way you can. And, you know, just know that better days are coming and you'll be able to enjoy it. When it happens again, you'll be able to enjoy it more. Safe travels down to New York. Have fun. Hopefully it's a, a long weekend of coverage and we'll talk to you on the flip side. And as for anyone listening, we will be back tomorrow with a preview of UConn's opponent in the second round, the quarterfinal round of the Big East tournament. Thanks for tuning in everybody. This is episode 12 of the It's Coming podcast.